0: Corn Playbook, a critical take on the wide world of sports movies. So, it's the 5th episode, and while that's not much of a milestone, I thought I'd do something different and talk about 5 sports movies that I would like to see made. For all the sports movies out there already, there are still times I find myself wondering why haven't they made one about this? So let's talk about five subjects that I think would make great films. First on my list is Bear Town, a novel by the Swedish writer Fredrik Backman, whose most well-known book is probably a man called Ove. Beartown takes place in a small Swedish town where hockey is king. Specifically, the junior hockey club made up of 17-year-old boys from the area. Beartown lives and dies with this team the way a small Texas town would for its high school football team, or a small Indiana town would for its high school basketball team. And as the Beartown team continues on its path towards the regional championship, the excitement and tension escalates for everybody in town. Then one night at a party, Beartown's star player rapes a girl. When the girl publicly accuses him, he denies it, which forces everybody in town to choose sides for whom they believe. Predictably, perhaps, most of the town stands behind the player. Not necessarily because they believe him, but because they're afraid of losing their star for the rest of their season. Unfortunately, this is a situation we see far too often in American sports, both at the professional and amateur levels. A star player commits a heinous act and either gets off scot-free or with merely a slap on the wrist. And while some fans may shun the player afterwards and might even refuse to support the team they play for, let's be honest, most of us will hold our noses and continue to cheer for them as long as they're helping our team. Ken Dryden is a Hall of Fame goaltender who played for the Montreal Canadiens during their great dynasty in the 1970s. In his post-hockey career, he's been a lawyer, politician, and educator, and he's spoken out about this culture that shields athletes from legal consequences. Dryden says, It's really a sense of power that comes from specialness. Anyone who finds himself at the center of the world he's in has a sense of impunity. And that idea is very much at the heart of Bear Town. Beartown star player Kevin knows that the entire town is relying on him, the way Gotham relies on Batman. Here's a passage from the novel It's only so important that a 17 year old in a private garden has been standing here since he got frostbite on his cheeks one night 10 years ago, firing puck after puck after puck with the weight of an entire community on his shoulders. What I like about this passage is that it suggests that Kevin's sense of self-importance is not entirely fabricated or delusional. The town really does consider him so important that they're willing to excuse something like rape, and therefore they're all culpable to some extent. And this is why I think Beartown would make an interesting film because it points a finger at all sports fans and asks, what would we do if, say, the quarterback of our favorite team did something like this the week before the Super Bowl? It also has a cast of interesting and believable characters who have their own issues and storylines. And in fact, a single movie might not be enough for Beartown, it might be better served as a miniseries to fully cover everything in the novel. Beartown actually is being adapted into a Swedish television series, so I guess I'm cheating a little bit here with this pick, but at present, I don't know if there are plans for it to make its way over to the U.S. in a dubbed or subtitled version, and if not, I would love to see an English-language adaptation. The next movie I'd like to see is one about the early days of baseball, the mid to late 19th century when the sports started becoming more organized and started becoming a business. It's almost hard to picture a time when professional sports were simply games everyone played for fun. I suppose we're seeing something a bit similar nowadays with video games, where what used to be nothing but kids entertainment has become an organized, competitive big business through esports. Netflix aired an original series in 2020 called The English Game, which was about the early days of the English Football Association in the late 1800s, and how soccer went from being a gentleman's game to becoming a professional sport. And I think there's a similar story to tell with the early days of baseball, because the idea of paying players and charging admission to games was not enthusiastically received at first. When we heard of a professional game in which men cared nothing whatever for patriotism but only for money, games in which rival towns would hire the best players from a natural enemy, we could scarcely believe the tale was true. No kinsman boy would any more give aid and comfort to a rival town than would a loyal soldier open a gate in the wall and let an enemy march in. Clarence Darrow, Kinsman, Ohio. Today, a very controversial topic in American sports is whether college athletes should be paid a salary by their schools. Some people argue that they already are being paid through scholarships, which, considering the astronomical cost of college in the U.S., could equate to an average person's salary. On the other hand, considering that some of these college teams generate tens of millions of dollars for the school, isn't it reasonable for the players to expect more proportionate compensation? It's a tricky subject, with more far-reaching repercussions than some people realize. Many people believe that paying college athletes would be like opening Pandora's box, which is exactly what some people thought back in the 19th century about paying people to play baseball. What must be the contempt for those who would degrade our great national game and make it a business? When such becomes the case, farewell to baseball. The excitement which is at present attendant on these contests will cease. Then the game itself will gradually but surely die out. Philadelphia City item. My idea is that this movie could focus on the first professional baseball team, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, led by their player manager, Harry Wright. In 1869, Wright organized a team from the best players he could find and paid them salaries that were many times what the average working man was making. But the move paid off on the field. In their first season, the Red Stockings went 57-0, and the next year they jumped out to a 24-0 start. But then in June, they played a game in Brooklyn against the Brooklyn Atlantics. 20,000 people turned out to watch the game, and they saw the Red Stockings lose for the first time. 8-7 in extra innings to a team of amateurs. This game could be the climax of the film. At the time, it was hailed as the greatest baseball game ever played. And according to George Vesey, the loss, quote, "...seemed to instantly ruin the Red Stockings' aura," unquote. Attendance for their games went down, and the team disbanded at the end of the year, with Harry Wright taking some of his players to form a new team in Boston. For a moment, it looked like the idea of paying players had been stopped dead in its tracks, But the following year saw the formation of the nine-team National Association of Professional Baseball Players, and pro baseball was here to stay. It's one of the few storylines and eras in baseball history that Hollywood hasn't mined yet, and I think it would make a great film. Everyone, I'm Andy Muster along with Cal Ramsey here in the Superdome, and tonight the Knicks are facing the New Orleans Jazz, and of course that spells Pete Maravich. The next movie I'd love to see is one on basketball great Pistol Pete Maravich. Maravich played in the NBA in the 1970s and early 80s, but injuries slowed him down and he retired at only 32. But during his time in college in the pros, he put on some unbelievable displays. A lanky shooting guard, Maravich was a terrific ball handler, innovative passer, and prolific scorer who could score from anywhere on the court. At a time when basketball was still largely centered around big men in the inside game, Maravich ran fast breaks, baffled defenders with behind-the-back passes, and fearlessly put up jumpers from 25 feet out. LA Laker great Elgin Baylor said, Oscar Robertson was the best guard I've ever played against. Jerry West was the best I've ever played with. Pete was the best I ever saw. Before turning pro, Maravich dominated at the college level while playing for LSU. He still holds the NCAA records for most points in a single season and most points in a college career, averaging an astounding 44 points per game. And this was before the introduction of the three-point line in college. The player today who I think most resembles Maravich is Steph Curry, and I think even Curry might just shake his head at some of the plays Pete made. Listen to Hall of Famer Bill Walton describe a game he played against Maravich in the New Orleans Jazz. And we were pounding him early, way up at halftime, and Pete in the second half just takes over, and he goes absolutely wild. He's playing one against five, and he's up and down the court shooting jumpers, hooks, full court behind the back passes through guys legs he's just everything and at the very last play of the game we're up one and pete dribbles up four of our guys go chase him because they know he's not going to pass it <laughs> and he's falling out of bounds and he shoots it as he's tumbling over the row of fans in the corner literally and i am standing underneath the basket waiting for the last rebound of the game we're going to win the game and they're not going to win a game ever the new orleans jazz and the ball swishes my perfectly special player through he's unbelievable Pete developed his wild style when he was a kid, practicing hours and hours every day. He'd walk the two miles from his house into the main part of town, dribbling a ball the whole way. And besides the fundamentals, Maravich would actually practice unorthodox situations like shooting while falling down or switching hands in midair. The kinds of maneuvers we assume players can only improvise, Pete would actually hone to a science. You can search YouTube for a series of practice videos he made called Homework Basketball and see some of the strange and challenging drills he invented for himself as a kid. But it's not only his on-the-court performance that makes me want to see a movie about Pistol Pete. There was also a lot of drama in his personal life. Like his relationship with his father, who pushed him as a youngster towards devoting himself to basketball, and was also his coach at LSU. By all accounts, Pete loved and respected his father very much, but they certainly still had their fights along the way. His mother, unfortunately, suffered from mental illness and killed herself when Pete was in his 20s. Some people wondered if Pete inherited her illness because of some of his eccentric habits. He became a bit of a recluse after he retired from the NBA spending most of his time at home with his wife and son. He studied Eastern philosophies, especially reincarnation. He was passionate about vegetable gardening, learned multiple foreign languages, and eventually became a born-again Christian. Throughout his life he was also a big believer in aliens and UFOs. Back in the 70s, he painted the words take me in big letters on the roof of his condo. At age 40, after playing a pickup basketball game, Pete died from an extremely rare birth defect in his heart that had never been detected. This type of heart defect was said to usually kill people before their 20s and severely limit their physical stamina. But somehow Pete managed a Hall of Fame basketball career in spite of it. He had once told a reporter, I don't want to play 10 years in the NBA and die of a heart attack at 40. And of course, that's exactly what happened. There is an obscure 1991 movie about Maravich called The Pistol, The Birth of a Legend that I've only been able to see a few clips of. But I would love someone else to take a crack at putting The Pistol's life on screen. I go to play with the Kansas City Monarchs. And going to play with the Kansas City Monarchs to me was like... I say, like a white boy from the textile mills in South Carolina or the cotton fields in Mississippi, going to play the New York Yankees. Yeah, me from the Sari Fields going to play with the great Kansas City Monarchs. And let me tell you something. Some of the greatest ball players that ever lived, Mm-hmm. we could play. Yeah. And they always tell me, I know you're sorry you didn't play. A uh, uh, major league baseball. Don't feel sorry for me. I said, don't don't feel sorry for me because I I played some of the best baseball that was ever played. That's Buck O'Neill talking about the Negro Leagues. And if you listen to the Soul of the Game episode, you may have seen this one coming. I would love to see a movie or even a mini series about the Negro Leagues. There's so much history there, so many great players to bring back to the public consciousness. Like speedster Cool Papa Bell, who was so fast he could supposedly score from second on a sacrifice fly. Or Monty Irvin, who was such a great hitter that many speculated he would be the first black player in the major leagues. But Irvin was drafted into the war in 1942, and three years in battle took their toll on him, and he was never quite the same player afterwards. And then, of course, you have titans like Satchel Page and Josh Gibson, whom I already talked plenty about last episode. And all of these players and teams have a bit of mystery surrounding them. Records and stats were not kept as rigidly for the Negro Leagues, and there also isn't nearly as much film and photographic documentation. So much of what we know comes solely from eyewitness stories. And as some of these stories may have become a bit exaggerated over the years, it lends a bit of a mythic quality to the Negro Leagues that would be fun to play with in a movie. The story could follow one particular team, like the Kansas City Monarchs or the Homestead Grays, or maybe it could cover some of the barnstorming all-star teams who went around the country playing exhibition games against white teams, including some major league teams. How great would a scene be with Josh Gibson and Babe Ruth? Sports Illustrated's Holly Van Leuven recently wrote an article about a few black women who played briefly in the Negro Leagues. That would be fascinating to explore, too. Uh, So many stories, so many possibilities. I've already talked about Soul of the Game, and there is also a comedy inspired by the Negro Leagues called The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, starring Billy Dee Williams, James Earl Jones, and Richard Pryor. But I would still love to see a more epic take on the Negro Leagues. There's so much left to tell. All right, last but not least, let's talk about my fifth film idea. Opponent wearing black trunks, one ninety eight, one of the greatest heavyweights in the annals of Christiana, Joe Lewis. Few boxers are more respected or have had more cultural impact than Joe Lewis. He was not the first black heavyweight champion. Jack Johnson had won the title in 1908. But Lewis did it during a more public period in an era of radio, newsreels, and TV. And he put together a resume that's tough to match. In his book, Joe Lewis, Hard Times Man, Randy Roberts writes, for just short of 12 years, Lewis was the heavyweight champion of the world defending his title an astounding 25 times. No heavyweight champion has ever approached those figures. None have ever combined Lewis's power, longevity, and grace. It was as if Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, and Joe DiMaggio had been a single player. A single black player. And yet, for such a tremendous legacy, where is the big, lavish Hollywood film about Joe Lewis? We've seen lots of biographical boxing movies about other fighters over the years. Jake LaMotta, James Braddock, Jim Sullivan, Mickey Ward, Roberto Turan, and of course Muhammad Ali. But nothing about Joe freaking Lewis? You must be out of your goddamn mind! Joe Lewis, the greatest boxer I ever lived! He was bad in Captain Clay, he bad in Sugar Ray, he bad in that... Who that, you, the new boy, got, Mike, Mike Tyson looked like a bulldog. He bad in him, too! This one seems like such a no-brainer to me. Not only do you have the rags-to-riches story of a kid from an Alabama shack becoming heavyweight champion of the world, but you also have the racial aspect to explore as well, what Lewis meant to African Americans. He won the championship in 1937, ten years before Jackie Robinson would break the color barrier in baseball. Langston Hughes said of Lewis, No one else in the United States has ever had such an effect on Negro emotions. And then there's also what Joe Louis represented on the world stage. Now if I were making the film it would probably center around his two famous fights at Yankee Stadium with Germany's Max Schmeling. The first of these was in 1936. Everybody was predicting an easy win for Louis and Louis himself may not have taken the fight seriously enough. Supposedly, in the weeks leading up to the bout, he was spending more time on the golf course than in the gym. Schmeling, on the other hand, trained intensely, and it showed, with Schmeling knocking out Joe in the 12th round. But in spite of that fight's outcome, it was Lewis and not Schmeling who eventually got the title shot against James Braddock and knocked him out in the eighth to become heavyweight champ. But then came the rematch with Schmeling in 1938, and there was much more on the line than just a heavyweight belt. Tensions were rising in Europe and around the world as Nazi Germany's military escalation was poised to start a war, and the Nazi propaganda machine was already using Schmeling's previous victory over Lewis as proof of Aryan superiority. Symbolically, this second fight was much more than an ordinary boxing match between two men. Half a century before Rocky IV, this was the real thing—a clash between two countries in the boxing ring. And Schmeling is down. The count is five. Six, seven, eight. The in the ring. The fight is over. On a technical knockout, is beaten in one round. For all the buildup, the fight itself was rather anticlimactic. Lewis knocked out Schmeling in the first round, but no one in the U.S. cared that it was a boring fight. The outcome was all that mattered, and Lewis had scored a major victory for the U.S. and its allies, and for blacks and other minorities. And while Joe is obviously the hero of our story here, Max Schmeling makes for an interesting character too. Schmeling didn't agree with the Nazi party's politics. In fact, his manager was a Jewish American. Years later, he said of his second fight with Lewis, I'm almost happy I lost that fight. Just imagine if I would have come back to Germany with a victory. I had nothing to do with the Nazis, but they would have given me a medal. After the war, I might have been considered a war criminal. Schmeling and Lewis even wound up becoming friends after the fight and remained so for the rest of their lives. Now, call me crazy, but it sounds like there's a movie here, and it really boggles my mind why we haven't seen it yet. Spike Lee wanted to make a Joe Louis film many years ago, but wasn't able to find a studio to agree to the kind of budget he needed. However, Lee has said that he still wants to make it someday, so there may yet be hope. The Brown Bomber! Now that was a great boxer! You Damn right! There you go. Five sports movies I would love to see. If only I ran a Hollywood studio. Someday. Someday. Next episode, we venture into the soccer world with a film about the dark side of English football fandom. And no, I'm not talking about Green Street Bullion.